0: Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafiq. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Dearly beloved Roots of the Spirit community, Thank you so much now and always for joining in to listen to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. This episode is very special and dear to my heart because I interviewed my husband, Hisham Tafiq, and I'm not going to give his formal bio at the moment because I actually give his bio while we're engaged in the interview, so that is forthcoming. But I wanted to just speak briefly in the intro to talk about just some of the things that came up and we discussed following the episode, first of all, something funny and light. When I first started recording the episode between he and I, we were sitting there and I had notes and I I began to read from my notes or kind of refer too heavily to my notes in his opinion. And so he kept saying like, no, no. And I'm like, wait, that's not fair. Like, No other guest has told me, well, I just don't like the way you're delivering this. So (laughs) it's very lighthearted and funny. However, maybe one day there will be a, a bloopers tape that I'll release because I did keep it. But he and I were going back and forth like bantering. And he finally said, all right, just start over one more time. Just drop the notes. And so I dropped the notes and I welcomed him to the podcast. And I said, well, you'll see what happens. But I wanted to mention that because when you hear, you'll hear kind of like a duplicate. I welcome him to the podcast and then out of nowhere, I rewelcome him to the podcast and I left it in there just because I thought it was kind of cool because there was a major difference. Well, in addition to the fact that instead of just accepting my welcome, he kind of throws it back to me with a question. It will all make sense when you listen to the episode. What I'll do is I'll separate those two parts by saying remix, and so you'll know what I'm saying, but I left it all in there because I'm like, you know what, Hisham and I are husband and wife, so there's like a casualness to our tone that you'll notice, and I don't wanna take away from that by editing it out. And then in addition to that, the content and the subject matter that we speak about is very heavy, it's very personal, And I respect him so much for looking at the big picture and saying, you know what, I have a platform. I think that it's important for me to speak and use my platform. So the nature of our conversation today is centered on mental health and wellness, in particular for black men. So he'll be speaking from his personal vantage point, the journey that has led him to his path of healing And being able to kind of check in with himself and understand what he needs and just the different ways in which he, the way he lives with mental health and wellness is is very important to him. And so he and I have been having conversations for years, really, because he has just had such a transformational journey over the last 10 15 years and so have I and I've been kind of speaking about it ever so gradually on different episodes Um, we will definitely have conversations around mental health and wellness as it relates to women women of color black women but today it's it's focused on black men so back to what I was saying he has this amazing platform as a world-renowned actor and When we talk about what is most organically, authentically true to your heart, we have conversations like we just talk and talk and talk. Trust me, we like talk and talk and talk like we talk a lot and we both respectively believe that the best people to speak on matters are people who have lived them themselves, especially he, being a Black man in the United States, is really speaking directly to Black men in the United States and that experience, and trying to destigmatize the conversation around mental health and wellness. Another point to add to what I'm saying about our casual nature of communicating is that it's a real conversation and you'll be hearing some of the things that he discloses for the very first time, but between us, we've had this conversation and it doesn't take away from the sensitivity and the respect that I give him when we have these conversations, but it does, it may come across as casual, but that's just because we've been talking about it for years. I think it's also important in order to fully contextualize his, this interview, I interviewed Hisham in 2015, right as he was retiring from the New York City Fire Department after serving 20 plus years. It's actually a video on YouTube because that's how Roots of the Spirit used to be. It's transformed into a podcast. But I'm going to leave that interview in the show notes because if you're really interested in understanding the context of which he speaks and his life journey, especially diving fairly deep into his experience growing up, in this amazing tight-knit community with his father being the founding Imam and later Sheikh Tafiq of the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood in Harlem. Yeah, I highly recommend you go back and watch that interview and it will help kind of build an understanding of his journey. To the best of our ability, this episode will stand alone and it will merely graze the surface because today is kind of our kickoff conversation And like I said, he made me throw out my notes. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, of course I still had notes, but it wasn't the most formal of conversations around mental health and wellness. And this will be a kickoff because I do intend, we do intend on keeping the conversation going in continuing to find resources that we can share with one another. And I have a serious, serious request that if you know of resources for mental health and wellness in general that can benefit the listeners, please send them to me. My website is rootsofthespirit.com. You can go to contact and you can send an email and it will come directly to me. I guess one other thing that we talked about after we stopped recording is the fact that he spoke about his experience, his father's view on mental health and wellness, and he spoke about how his father, Sheikh Tafiq, really instituted and promoted mental wellness into his community so I just he and I actually had the conversation we just don't want there to be any confusion that we're saying like religion is a substitute for therapy or or help in in various ways it's merely it was merely a conversation around what his father was doing in the community and how he as a young person was provided with just this vast plethora of of activities and practices that promoted health. Um, so, yeah, I'm sure down the line we'll have a very hearty conversation about sometimes religion being an interesting element in people's lives. And to be completely brutally honest, um, there is a conversation around, you know, some people don't seek therapy because they feel as though their religion is a substitution. So, I'm not going to go deep into that right now. I just want to put it as a placeholder because there are a million other conversations that we're going to have about mental health and wellness. I also encourage you to submit ideas. You can send them to my email and especially related to Hisham um, and, and his journey because he has stepped forward to use his platform to speak out and promote health and wellness within the Black community and specifically with black men and the last thing that i'll say before we kick off the conversation is although we don't dive so deeply into it there hisham and i are both very well aware of the obstacles to seeking help in whatever form or fashion that looks whether it's seeking a therapist like a psychologist or psychiatrist like all of these different resources and services are definitely, there are so many obstacles and access is a big issue. And we acknowledge that right up front, that we might be having a conversation that involves like speaking very casually about, oh, so, you know, maybe therapy and like speaking of therapy, I know that therapy is very expensive, but what we're trying to do with this conversation is to channel and pool resources because i personally know and i'm going to put this in the show notes that there's there is a conversation that has emerged promoting mental health and wellness for black girls and black women amazing resources that i'm aware of and there could be possibly a absolutely amazing and awesome resources for black men as well and that's why we're putting this out there we don't have all the answers we're putting it out like a boomerang and hoping you can help us build this inventory and this resource list so that we can together collectively like have an impact. So those are just some of the things that I wanted to put out before you hear the episode because it's a deep conversation. So I did want to make sure that I made those acknowledgements. Thank you for engaging with us. We really appreciate it and we look forward to our next episode with Hisham Tafiq talking about mental health and wellness for black men. The content and discussion in this podcast will necessarily engage with the topic of mental health and wellness and trauma. My intention is to provide a platform from which we can engage bravely, empathetically and thoughtfully with difficult content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Just checking my audio and let's go. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast, Tisham. I'm so excited that you're finally going to be on my podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) I say finally as a joke because you were... One of the original Roots of the Spiritees when I had my Roots of the Spirit launched as a video series. So there's this awesome interview that we did. It actually coincided and we launched it at the cusp of you retiring from the fire department after serving 20 plus years. Yes. So I'm going to include that link to the YouTube video in the show notes. But today we're talking about something different. We've been bouncing around ideas for some time now, and we work together a lot behind the scenes in various ways on various projects. But in this case, we both decided that the time is right to bring some light to the work that we've been doing behind the scenes. And in this case, we're talking about having you come on the podcast Mm -hmm. on a periodic basis to spark conversations about mental health and wellness, especially as it relates to black men. Yes remix remix welcome to the roots of the spirit podcast Hisham. i'm really excited to have this conversation with you why because i think that the world has this idea of of who you are and i i love the image that the world has of you but i have a glimpse of the behind the scenes Hisham. wait a minute whose interview is this Fine no, or I just yours?
1: To, you say you're excited i wanted to know why that's
0: all. <laughs> kind of threw me for a loop, but it's good. Got to keep me on my toes. But for our listening audience who I love and adore so much, I am interviewing Hisham Nadir Binkoli Amin Tafiq, who is my husband. I have the privilege of sharing my life with him. And I've been talking to him for the longest time about the fact that his story needs to be told. And he has a magnificent story. And as I mentioned a minute ago, I interviewed Hisham right about the time when he was retiring from the New York City Fire Department after serving over 20 years. I'll leave the link for that interview in the show notes so you can learn about Hisham's journey toward retirement, becoming an actor, and booking the hit show The Blacklist all lined up together. That was in 2015, but I've since rebooted my Roots of the Spirit platform and it now lives and thrives as a podcast. So here we are, Back to what I was saying, the world sees you as a a brilliant actor because you are, but also, you know, I'm a doting wife, but I see so much value in you sharing parts of your experience to speak out about your journey related to mental health and wellness. So that's going to be at the heart of our conversation. And also, I hope we've gotten to the point where... We can agree that you will be a periodic contributor because we're trying to create momentum with the beautiful platform that you have, can speak out about your own experience and hopefully impact other people, in particular young black men and black men in general, as it relates to mental health and wellness, growing it organically. Mm -hmm. What comes to mind when I say mental health and wellness?
1: Um, When you say mental health and wellness, I automatically think about just making sure that you have a healthy mind, soul, and spirit.
0: Healthy mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. What I thought would be kind of cool is for the benefit of the listeners, as well as just to have a reference point to spark from. I'm going to read your official bio, which I have on my website, rootsofthespirit.com, because I represent you when it comes to your community and grassroots speaking engagements. Of course you have like managers and agents that you work with for your blacklist life and identity, but I work more on a grassroots level. So this is very fitting within that realm. So let me read it. I want you to close your eyes just because I want you to be fully present. Long before becoming widely known as Dembe, a Sudanese freedom fighter and right-hand man to Raymond Reddington on NBC's hit show The Blacklist, Hisham Taufik discovered his passion for the arts in high school while performing the poem I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Hisham then studied at the world-renowned Negro Ensemble Theater Company, which has brought forth such notable actors such as Denzel Washington, Ossie Davis, and Felicia Rashad. He also studied with Susan Batson, who's known for coaching actors such as Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise. Hisham says, as an actor, just like a human being, evolution and education are infinite. Throughout his career, Hisham continues to call on his life experiences and training to inform his choices as an actor and artist, being it as a marine in Desert Storm, a correction officer at Sing Sing Correctional Facility, or as one of New York's bravest FDNY. I enjoy portraying the leaders, fathers, and husband roles with heavy emotional currents flowing through their stories and characters. I also love work that has a spiritual tone. Evidence of this work ethic can be seen in his dramatic work on FX Lights Out, NBC drama Law & Order, SVU, and Criminal Intent. Hisham also starred in a groundbreaking one-hour drama Gun Hill as Captain Sanford, starring Lorenz Tate. Is also starred in episodes of 30 Rock and Nurse Jackie and the beautiful coming-of-age film about a young African-American Muslim girl, Jin. So that's your official bio. And when I reread it, what's interesting to me is that there's a thread running through it, although it's your professional bio, that gives us little inklings at your spiritual nature, at things that, to me, when I think about it, indicate your deep personal connection to yourself and what you draw on and that type of thing. I just saw so many gems and I want to spark the conversation around that. You were inspired at a very young age by I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Can you talk to me about your recollection? Why that poem?
1: Um, wow, that was a long time ago. I was high school, like 11th grade or 12th grade. I think it was my first time reading a poem out loud with a public audience and something about, there's a difference between reading something to yourself and then reading it out loud. And for some reason, reading that poem out loud for my class made more sense to me than reading it in my head. And for some reason, it just, I felt free. That's the only thing I could say. I felt free reading it, and I felt good reading it and, and, and performing it for the class. I couldn't even really remember. I couldn't tell you word for word right now what the poem was about without going back and looking at it. But if I was to think where my head was at that time, I just felt free.
0: When you're saying that, what comes to mind is there's this beautiful quote from Maya Angelou saying that people might not necessarily remember what you said to them, but they will remember how you made them feel. So that's beautiful. We've done a very comprehensive interview, focusing on your life, your upbringing, your role in the FDNY, how you became an actor on the YouTube series. However, in a very broad sense, can you give a quick snapshot of your life journey that brought you to this moment?
1: I started playing football in high school. Well, even before football, I think one of the earliest memories I have of performing as my father used to make me do um, (laughs) like these they call them katas karate um, you know you learn a bunch of karate moves so I had to perform these katas on a stage uh, before my father used to give his lectures I was like the opening act and that's like my earliest memories of, of doing or performing but then I would say after that I didn't do anything until maybe high school when I started playing football and um, fell in love with it, but the injuries couldn't continue. So I started taking dance, specifically a West African dance class. I fell in love with the drum, the African drum, the djembe. And then from dance over the years, it transitioned from dance to theater. And then it got to a point to, I started doing TV and film. um, But at the same time, I was holding down my job with the New York City Fire Department. And all throughout those 20 years, I was always doing plays and auditions and short films. And it was like a slow burn. And um, 2013 is when I booked um, The Blacklist.
0: To give a bit of context about how you grew up, you grew up in a very tight-knit community. Your father, Sheikh Tafiq, was the founding imam of the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood in Harlem. And to kick off this conversation, I thought it would be interesting to talk about something we talk about a lot, which is your father's stance and just the way that he looked at mental health as as it relates to African-Americans and the African-American experience.
1: So my father was of the strong belief that the African-American people in the States were a severely traumatized people. And I know now, I've, and, and I just read an article where somebody was saying, was it my brother? Somebody was like, this guy wrote a book, and he was like, the only thing with black people is they think something's wrong with them. Like, And I didn't read the whole book of what he said, but I was kind of turned off with that statement because you have to acknowledge that there is some trauma, and that trauma doesn't mean like we're less than or not worthy, but there is an injury. And I always use this example. In, when I'm talking about trauma, especially mental illness, is like, and he said this in one of his kutbahs, in one of his sermons, was that African American folks, Black folks, are so quick to recognize physical injuries. Like, if you tear your knee up, you're like, oh, I got to get surgery, break your ankle, break your wrist, break those physical injuries, we acknowledge, we seek help, we want to get ourselves up and running again. But when it comes to Uh, what I call mental injuries, we, for some reason, don't recognize it, not aware of it, or are ashamed to acknowledge that injury. We'll say, yo, I broke my arm, I got to get it fixed. But if you say, hey, I had a breakdown, like that's something you're not going to say publicly, or even to yourself privately. So um, he was very aware of that way back in in the early part of his life that that was something that had to be dealt with inside the community of just recognizing that they're both injuries and they both need to be treated accordingly. He was of the belief of getting help, but then he was also of the belief of be careful who you go to for assistance and I think his analogy was like, if your seek if your if toilet is overflowing, you're not gonna call an electrician, you know what I mean, you're gonna call a plumber. So. He spoke in depth about this, and his and his opinion was that Islam was the medicine to heal the traumas of, um, and I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but he, he believed that Islam was the parachute, was what you needed to help guide you through a lot of these traumatic illness and injuries, um, and that was something that he firmly believed and spent his life trying to teach and make folks aware of it so that they could become um, healthy and enlightened. So he was light years ahead and well aware of what was affecting black people. And he spent his life working on a cure.
0: He actually implemented different practices into the community Mm -hmm. i just want for you to expand upon that because it's the teachings of the religion but also the practice that he specifically and i mean like some of the ideals right but Mm -hmm. he actually had the community in practice in various ways
1: yeah so i mean there was i mean from an early age there was always physical activities like we always played soccer we learned how to swim very early, he was, uh, he was scuba, he had his scuba license, so he knew how important uh, swimming was, which is a life skill. Um, we did a lot of camping and outdoor activities. We did a lot of, um, when I say military training, just drilling, um, learned the importance of discipline. Um, like there was this um, pie of different activities that he felt that should be incorporated into our everyday lives. And that was also fasting, was also music. Like he listened to a lot of jazz. Um, like there was just so many things that would fill up the the bowl of um, making sure you were well-rounded.
0: Although you grew up in this community that had mental health and wellness at the heart of it, you experienced profound trauma at a very early age when your mother was killed at four.
1: Yes, to gun violence. I would say that was probably my first experience with death and loss. And I don't even know if I fully understood it at the time. I know, I remember the police knocking on the door. Um, I remember there were white police officers and I remember crying, but I don't know if I was crying because I knew the news that my mother had died or if I was crying because these white police officers were knocking on our door. I couldn't tell you why why, why I was crying, but I knew something was wrong. Um, but I don't think it hit me that my... I do remember, too, at and I don't know how old I was, I do remember them taking me to a therapist. But I do remember going to a therapist, I had no clue why, might've got evaluated, and that was it. Um, Unfortunately, my father, no one's around for me to ask why I went, I don't know if I was showing behavior, you know, something, but I do remember going to see someone. But I don't think I really started, you know, because then I had a stepmother, so I don't think I really realized not having my mother until maybe I was like eight or nine, maybe even later, between eight and 11 is when um, I remember I would cry in my room and talk to my stepmother about missing my mother.
0: So later on down the years, you lost your father to illness while you were in high school. And then when you were in your early 20s, your younger brother Hamza was killed.
1: Yeah, right before I went into the Correction Academy, so I was 24.
0: And he was how old?
1: Hamza was, I'm bad with my brother's ages. Um, He was at least four or five years younger. He was in his second semester at Binghamton University, so he was probably 18 or 19.
0: Even though we've had this conversation many, many times, just when I hear you say it again, that you lost your mother, your father, and your brother, I'm just in awe of your strength. And that was before you had your emotional awareness. Yeah,
1: that was all. I mean, I lost my mother, father, and brother before. But then again, all of that was buried. And then... uh, I just went on through life, not really thinking about it. And it didn't pop up again until it popped up again around 2004 or five when I bought my first house. And I remember I was excited about buying my first house, but then it just hit me that I didn't have a mother or father who could say, Hey, We're proud of you. That's a huge accomplishment. And then that's when I had like my first like kind of like breakdown.
0: Knowing that you experienced trauma after your mother was killed at such a young age, and then how it came back to you and how it flooded back to you in some instances. And you've talked to me about how your some of your acting teachers, Susan Batson in particular through an acting activity kind of gave you an awareness about yourself and how you were feeling about your mother's death that you might not have otherwise realized. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I knew for a long time when I was, when I really started to like take a lot of, um, actually, I think it started with Tasha Smith's, she used to have like this intense acting workshop. that was like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I remember taking this workshop and I remember the beginning of her class, she has something called an emotional dump. And you're supposed to get on stage and just emotionally dump. And I remember getting on the stage and I tried to emotionally dump and I just found myself, my mouth was dry and I was just really angry, but really not showing any other shades of my feelings. Just anger. And I remember I remember her saying, hey, you know, you need to go work with Susan Batson, who I believe was her teacher and her saying like she's like this emotional genius and can help like really uh,
0: like tap into those tap
1: into that. So I went to Susan Batson and she had this class called I can't remember the name of the class you had to take, but it was like this introduction course and you had to go through all of these steps. You had to pass each step. Mm-hmm. So, like, one was called moment of defeat. Another step was called uh, you had to call a parent. Another one was called lost and found. Like we, you had to lose a, a possession. So, my father had a Rolex watch, and it was very special to me, and I kept it. And I remember on lost and found, I had the watch and. Like I put it, I had to put it somewhere and trick my mind into thinking I lost it and like really going crazy, like finding this watch. Um, But then the one that really, really, really opened the floodgates for me was this step where uh, you had to call one of your parents and have a conversation with them. I remember doing it the first time and I failed. Uh, I got up there I was just angry, ah, yelling. And I failed. So then I went home and I remember that's when I started listening to Anthony Hamilton. And I listened to a couple of his songs. And for some reason I started looking at my mother's picture and it just opened up all of this other stuff. So then when I went back and did the class again, I played that song uh, while I was doing the exercise and the floodgates just opened. And then to build on that we had another step where i called my mother and had a conversation with her and just from there forward like the light bulb went off about how to um tap into my emotions and solving some of the issues that i had um uh, with the loss of my mother i mean i lost my mother father and brother before That 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 Class I took with Susan Batson wasn't until 2009 or 8.
0: So I'm curious, the way you describe it, the floodgates opened. So what was the experience? What did you do with that? I mean, now you're open. Did you go to therapy right away or?
1: No, once, once the gates open, you find yourself crying a lot. Like, especially the first time, I found myself crying probably... The next two days, every time I went to bed, I would cry, and just I couldn't even tell you why. You think about stuff and you're just crying. Um, but there, there was so much other stuff wrapped into it. Yes, we did those things, but then there's journaling. There was just so much you learn about yourself that every day you came home from class, you were just emotionally open. If you let yourself open up, there's some people who couldn't. That would never pass that 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 exercise.
0: So, which came first? Acting class opening you up or therapy? Can you talk about how those two Um, relate?
1: That's that's weird because I think so I started going to therapy and after nine eleven. I kept having these severe stomach pains. I kept going to the hospital and they couldn't find anything. That there was Crohn's disease, that there was this, there was that, and then one of the doctors was like, Maybe you just need to go to therapy.
0: Can we pause there for a second? Because I want to mention the extreme trauma that firefighters are seeing trauma every day, let alone the catastrophe of 9 11. Mm-hmm. And there is a unit, a mental health unit in the fire department, right?
1: Yeah, there's a counseling service. That's, yeah.
0: But I guess you can say that your life journey may or may not have kind of had you at an openness to be able to seek therapy through your own agency, like the fire department.
1: I didn't even think about counseling unit. I didn't probably didn't even know they existed when I was in the fire department. That wasn't even, it didn't, my stomach was bothering me so bad that when he suggested that, I didn't think I needed therapy, but I was willing to try anything to get rid of the
0: pain. So once you started down that path, talk to me about that
1: man. So I started down the path. They suggested this therapist. I go to see her. It was an older white woman. And there was just no connection. I think I would go there and probably be mute for 40 minutes of that hour. It was just kind of painful. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember remember specifically looking for requesting a black therapist, but there were no black therapists in the network.
0: Do you think that... I mean of course we're going to get to why you think it's important to seek out somebody who can understand your cultural background ethnic background like why that's that is an advantage in terms of seeking out therapists but going back to you personally were you even ready to open no or was it a combination It was a combination of not necessarily the best fit and you might not have been ready to open fully. Correct.
1: It was a combination of both. I I just didn't even... There's no, like, pre-class for therapy. So, especially me as a black man in my 20s, like, going to see this white woman, I was like, I didn't even know what to do. I didn't even know how to talk or speak about... First of all, I didn't know I had a problem. I was like, my stomach hurts, so so that's why I'm here so I wasn't like oh yeah you know I had this happen to me and I just went there like yeah my stomach hurts They said I need to come here so it was man I think I was with her for like a year sometimes I wouldn't show up for appointments not even call her to let her know like her name was Carolyn Holmes Garrett and this woman was extremely patient with me um And it took probably a year and not of me going to her once a week, a year of me going, not going, going, not going, not calling, like leaving her hanging. It took a year of me finding. It probably took a year for me to say, okay, you know what? Let me give this a shot. And then when I made up my mind to give it a shot, that's when we started to make some progress of just talking about Uh, my upbringing and background and all of that type of stuff. But then at the same time, I think I stuck with it because I think the stomach pain went away. It used to come at least twice a year. And I think once I started working with her, stomach pain kind of dissipated. So I stuck with her, but still wasn't truly committed. And it wasn't until... But at the same time, I was doing these acting classes. So they were both happening at the same time. Um And then I think the light bulb went off in 2010 when I came back from doing the play A Raisin in the Sun. And I remember coming back
0: from Little Rock, Arkansas, from Little Rock, Arkansas, so you're an actor living in New York. You got cast to do your play in Little Rock and the nature of the play kind of it, 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 it penetrated you in a different way. Is that right? Yeah,
1: because I, I was Walter Lee. He has a this relationship with his mother it was the first time I was playing a lead I was my cast was kind of dependent on me and the role is set up for everybody to kind of lean on Walter Lee and it kind of broke me down and exhausted me emotionally so as soon as I came back I reached out to her because I was like I know I need to talk about this experience now you gotta remember I started seeing her after nine eleven, so 2002 2003 and then in 2010 I call her so that just told you how long I had been working with her so I call her I'm like hey I need to see you and I remember her saying um I'm ill like I'm, I'm sick right I can't see you and I didn't I was like okay I'll wait till she gets better and then I kept calling and calling and I couldn't reach her and then uh I don't know how I found out or who told me, but somebody was like, she died. And I called the counseling unit pissed off. I was like, you don't think you guys could have told me that the therapist died? Like, don't you think it's your duty that if you have people going to see someone and they die, you need to let them? Like I was I went off on whoever answered the phone, but, you know, I don't even think they even really knew. You know what I mean? Because I had chose someone. So in the fire department, you can see two different counselors. You can go to the main hub Mm -hmm. where they have the counselors and see a therapist. Or you can pick somebody who has their own practice away. I knew I didn't want to go there as a black man, just sitting in a room and everybody looking at me and judging me. I didn't want to do that. I wanted something a little more private. So I chose somebody. So maybe they didn't know, but I find it hard to believe that they didn't know that she passed away. So I had to look for another therapist.
0: I know you were really heartbroken that she died because you said she was a wonderful person. she gave so much of herself, and she was very patient with you. But do you think part of you was scared because you had been really accustomed to that support and scared especially of what? scared about just like being on your own after spending a solid eight years with somebody who is helping you work through your own? I'm speaking personally when I find a good therapist and then for some reason, whether they move to being um they don't take my insurance anymore or whatever like it's really hard to find a good therapist and when you do and for whatever reason you don't have that support anymore it can be discombobulating. yeah it was
1: it was the i mean if i didn't I, l- luckily i was at a point where I now i knew the importance of it and knew that i needed someone to talk to but um that's the only thing that made me look for another person because i knew i was i needed to speak to someone so i was kind of turned off and like, oh my God, I got to start all over again. And I think my new therapist was like, you don't look at it as just starting all over. You look at it as a continuation, which made me feel a little bit better, but it was still hard starting off with another therapist after those many years.
0: That's really interesting. I know that's something that you've instilled in me in in a in a mental health and wellness sense, but also as it relates to career and trajectory of just life, the continuation, because I used to say that. I used to say, oh, I'm starting all over, and you're like, no, it's a continuation. I think that philosophy or frame of mind is really helpful.
1: Well, I mean, don't, I, don't, don't, I don't get it twisted that, of course, if you're going to a new person, at some point you do have to lay the foundation again, especially about your early childhood life, Especially if that's usually the result of whatever is going on with you at that moment. So at some point, you do have to bring that up so they know how to guide you.
0: No, I totally hear you in that. But I think think I'm looking at it on the other side, which is, yes, you do have to bring them up to speed. And it's going to take time building Mm -hmm. that relationship and foundation. But you've been doing the work. So you're at a certain level that you have grown to and transformed and evolved to yeah so it's not to negate the work that you've been doing of course it's like starting a new job you have to learn the policies and practices and the culture of the place but you bring the previous experience
1: true great point
0: so you carried forth And when I met you in Little Rock, ironically, but we never developed a relationship. It was purely professional because I was actually the assistant director for Raisin in the Sun in Little Rock. When I met you, sheerly, purely that it was all professional. We didn't start dating and eventually fiancifying and getting married later on. But I say that to say, since I've met you, you've been on a journey and a path of continually seeking, growing, evolving practicing you have a daily practice you have rituals you have a routine and you're very serious and disciplined about the maintenance you take yoga you swim you play golf you snowboard you do a lot of different things and physical activity is definitely a part of it but you also go to therapy you also um go to the mosque go to the mosque yes i was just about to say that like your faith is it's like if you look at it like your health and wellness in a holistic sense like a pie so to speak you have different slices and it's a matter of trying to maintain balance with all of them
1: i mean when you mention it like that some people might sound oh my god that sounds overwhelming but if you but that's own,
0: your journey. So everyone has their own specific journey.
1: Yes, but if you look at it, like I love using analogies, if you look at it as if home, homeowners would understand this, you know you got to maintain the roof. You have to maintain the lawn. You have to paint the outside of the house. Sometimes you have to paint the inside. Sometimes you got to snake the plumbing over this. You got to fix the stove, replace the stove. Like you know when you're owning a home, that there is some maintenance you have to upkeep or sooner or later that house is going to just fall apart.
0: I mean, you could use the analogy with renting. You, you can, can look at it can, Yeah,
1: well, whether
0: but what renting think,
1: or having a, even a car.
0: But you know what's key about what you're saying is that I have grown in my mentality around that because sometimes this area gets 75%, this area gets 25 And it's like, I think even just acknowledging like you okay so you want to use the house as an analogy you're not going to be like building the deck fixing the roof repaving the driveway all at once no it comes in steps i
1: tried that when i got my first house <laughs> There's, it's not a mistake
0: why i mentioned those three things but <laughs> i say that so how do you balance it all maybe it's that you're you have developed A relationship with yourself to the point where you can assess and say right now what I need I need to be in nature right now I need to go snowboarding right now I feel like I need to book a therapy session like how have you gotten to the point that you actually know what you need because I feel like you do a great job at it
1: um I think the combination of therapy and acting like once you become really in tune with yourself you start to see cues or behavior that will let you know it's like the squeaky wheel like that'll let you know something needs attention and you have to really 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 be aware of yourself to do that but i think between the acting and therapy i've kind of i have these antennas or feelers now that um I can pick up on some stuff and say, "Uh uh-oh, this is a bad habit, flaring its head, or I'm feeling this way because, all right, let me go get a tune-up. So now I'm at a point where I can do that. And even sometimes I'll get hit and then not pick up on it. But um, that took a lot of work to get to a point to be able to recognize it.
0: So you and I have had many conversations over the years about mental health and wellness. And I feel like, I feel very fortunate that we both are very open about it. Our journeys, our respective journeys, trying to be better and being able to tune up as you as you described. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fortunate that although I experienced trauma in my life as well, my mother was a social worker and she exposed me to many communities and practices. I've also indulged in my own seeking over the last 10 plus years. And so I'm on my own journey. I thought it would be really meaningful for you to share your journey because not everybody has access, resources of knowing what's out there. And I also think it's important to try to break down the stigma of mental health and wellness and look at it in a more holistic sense. Like therapy is very helpful can be life changing, but there are also things that can help you regulate outside of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like if you were speaking to a group of young black men about mental health and well being, what would you say to them?
1: Whew. That's I mean it's hard because wow. Well, um it's I I, I for so it's hard. Because when you don't know, you don't know. And if you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who don't know, like It takes an incredible, incredible amount of insight or awareness to step outside and do something different. Um, So, so many young people who are in need of help are surrounded by groups of people where everybody needs help. So everybody thinks they're fine. And then to step outside of that group, now you're leaving all your friends and your homies going to go do something that you might not truly believe or trust or is foreign to you don't have even let's not even talk about having the money or to know how to even where to start with that
0: well that's what i was saying earlier about resources and access i mean i feel as though like there's institutional racism is at play in terms of um racializing therapy racializing services racial oh, absolutely
1: like- absolutely i mean and it's so interesting. Like, even I read an article in the Times where they were talking about the whole opioid crisis. And they were talking about why it had affected so many white people in these rural areas and why it was so much of a bigger problem in white communities is because of the racism. Where as a black person, you go to the doctor and say, Oh, my knee hurts. I'm in pain. And they dismiss it. Oh, you'll be all right. Go take some. When a white person goes there and says, oh, boom, you get the pills. And they were saying that was part of the reason for this whole thing. It was kind of racism was part of that issue. And it's the same thing when it comes to therapy. Um, I think this country looks at black people as being strong, being, can take everything, not being in pain, just, you know, and that plays into even black people were thinking that they can overcome some of those things or they have no problem, but it's, 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 it's not true.
0: So you mentioned something that sparks me to think about. So like catastrophes and wars, just different quote terrorist attacks and that type of thing are looked at like, okay, this happened, this historic event, or this contemporary event happened, the people need help. Mm -hmm. Like there is an awareness around 9-11 responders that that Mm -hmm. trauma was inflicted and intergenerational trauma set in motion, we need help. Mm -hmm. So looking at that, but then going up even further, like in terms of looking down on all of this with like a 30,000 foot view, Black people in the United States and the intergenerational traumas of being ripped from their homeland and the sentiments that you just described that, oh, you're fine. Or what are you complaining about when you have hundreds of years of intergenerational trauma passed down? It's... Of course, on the flip side, there's the resilience and the strength, but have we dealt with the trauma?
1: No, I think now people, I think intergenerational trauma is a word that I've just learned about in the last five or six years. Um, And now reports are coming out and scientific data is coming out that backs it up. But even with all of that, the government or the powers to be haven't said, hey, you know what? We need to provide, you know what? Forget uh, why everybody keeps thinking that it has to be A monetary payment when we talk about um,
0: reparations. reparations.
1: Why can't it be, hey, free therapy? You know what I mean? Why can't it be something like that? Because if you're going to acknowledge that trauma can be passed down from generation to generation, then you need to take out the people who are most affected or suffering. And if you look at slavery, Then one plus one is two. But there's, you know, of course, there's some people that I'm not going to acknowledge that. And I think one of the huge problems, and it's something that made it clearer for me, I was already aware of it, but will make it clear for other people is when I went to Ghana.
0: I was just thinking about
1: that. (laughs) The tour guide.
0: So you went to Ghana with your son. My son. son,
1: I took my son for his 21st birthday to Ghana for about 10 days for the year of return. And it was probably the best trip of my life and going to uh some people say Elmina Elmina uh castle which is the oldest um, slave port in Africa when the first um, one of the things he said that was extremely profound was he talked about how people would judge or had opinions about the slaves and how they fought back so you had some That revolted and were condemned to death. You had some who got on the ship and committed suicide and jumped off the ship right there, knowing sharks were in those waters. You had some that made the journey. You had some that died from sickness and illness and disease. Then you had some that made the journey and his ex- his His explanation for those that made the journey it was he was like, "You got to look at it. These are people who were ripped from their mothers, their fathers, their daughters, their sons, their aunts, their uncles, and if anything, they had a hope that they would one day see them again, and that hope gave them the fuel and the determination to live and to get through all of those." stages of abuse and horrible treatment. But he said each one of those African people, each, each each choice that they made was still an act of fighting back, was still an act of, of, of speaking up, of, of revolting. And when you look at all of those different stages, you say, okay, there, there are different ways of doing it. Um, so I say that to say. So you have some people who will say, "Oh well, this person is successful. He he came from his one mother household, living in the projects, but he went to the college and the MBA. He had millions of dollars. This guy started his own business. This guy did this. Okay, fine. We are all made differently. You know, my father used to say, you know, every snowflake ain't the same. We all have a different fingerprint." And you can't expect one person to be able to get through this obstacle and then say, well, if he did it, everybody... If that was true, there should be a whole bunch of other Bill Gates out here.
0: Well, but, actually, that's a part of the manifestation of racism because it's called exceptionalism. Like holding up one black person's achievement or success and saying, well, they did it, so why can't you? Exactly. That's That's institutionalized and, racism.
1: And it, and it goes to mental health where you see there's some people... Where all of these surrounding traumas and things, it might not affect them. But then there's one person who it will break. And well,
0: I feel like we're all impacted. The way I, I was at an anti racism training workshop recently, and the, the, the analogy they used is we're all breathing the fog of racism. We're all breathing it, it's mm-hmm. impacting us in different ways, but the fog is in the air and we're all breathing it. So I feel similarly when it comes to mental health and wellness, we're all breathing it. Like every human being right now on the planet is dealing with something. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting time and there's a lot being thrown at everyone. But in particular, young black people, young black men who I feel as though you have a connection with because of the nature of your work and your community that you've built I really want to spark this conversation and try to like and I'm not saying we have a solution today this is just the beginning like we're literally sparking the conversation just in preparation for the interview I started uh, poking around online and looking at the different initiatives that are going on because Interestingly enough, you and I have been looking, okay, so what are the black male initiatives related to mental health and wellness and very, very slim. And so like on a national scale, yes, people are doing things, but we need more. And so that's how our conversation initiated. So I went online and I looked and I saw that Chance the Rapper has actually started his own foundation. For example, it says, Chance the Rapper donated a million dollars to help improve mental health services in Chicago. So that's Chicago. Also, Brandon Marshall from the NFL started his own organization called The Stigma. Um, So he started an initiative called My State of Mind to help connect people with um, mental health resources also, they're saying like Jay-Z has come out in interviews and talking about his experiences with therapy and helping him grow as a man. Like I said earlier, I found it really interesting reading the story of Brandon Marshall yeah, I know and his journey. So there are men who are speaking out and I just feel like you're such an incredible man. You've had such an incredible journey. It has not been easy, but you have a voice and you have a platform. So... If someone was listening to this episode and they only got to hear this episode, because like I said earlier, I hope this is a continuation of conversations around mental health, in particular for Black people and specifically young Black men, what do you want to leave them with is your message or just something you want them to contemplate as it relates to taking, um, just being aware of our own mental health and well-being and seeking out help if we need it.
1: Uh, i would leave them with this and it's connected to what you said as far as, far as we're all breathing the fog right so if you know that you we're all breathing the fog then the question is how is it affecting you now where are you on the scale it's affecting you in some way whether it's severe mild very little you're being affected like i said if you look at it is that analogy like so as a firefighter We would go into a fire. It's smoke, CO, all of that. When everybody came out, they would have something called, I think it's called the MERV bus or something like that. They would set up a bus. Everybody who was in that fire had to go to this bus and get your CO level checked. And some people's levels were higher than others. And depending on your level, then you had to go get treatment. Or take longer, get some oxygen, whatever it was, but everybody came out that fire and got checked. So I would say that all of us, all all the black people in these states, United States, like you said, we're breathing in the fog. Now we all need to go get checked, find out our level, and then build some type of of plan of dealing with it and maintaining a healthy, balanced lifestyle.
0: had to take a breath. I want to say thank you for being open and vulnerable. I oftentimes find myself trying to maintain a healthy balance of using the platform for people's stories to be amplified but being sensitive to we should have an awareness of these issues and how they live and manifest, but oftentimes we don't. And I know personally, I learn from people's stories. And so I appreciate your boldness and your transparency, especially when it relates to talking about things that have traumatized you. Um, I say that I won't have any of my guests speak about anything that I'm not willing to speak about. So if you're interested, I mean, I'll throw it out there right now. Maybe we can turn the tables one day and you can ask me questions about my journey. But I just want to thank you for sharing so openly.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for the discussion and I look forward to building on
0: it. Thank you so much, Hisham. All right. Have a healthy, lovely day.